Hello and welcome to Quadcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Claire Bottini. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And we are here with uh, Maggie Pringer. How are you, Maggie? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you guys? Good, good. Thanks for good. being here. So you're a PhD student in the yes. uh, MD program. So can you maybe describe a bit more what this program is and what you're doing in this program? Sure. So I'm in the MD-PhD program um, here at Western. So this is a seven-year program um, with a three-year PhD and the four years of uh, medical school. Um, there's different ways that those programs and years can be divided. The way that I'm doing it is doing the three-year PhD first, followed by the four-year uh, medical school program. Um, so right now I'm in the second year of my PhD in the neuroscience program. Okay. And what kind of study or what direction your PhD is taking then? Um, so I am looking at um, humor processing in Parkinson's disease. Um, I guess more broadly, I'm really interested in the kind of social and emotional um, symptoms that can come along with Parkinson's. Normally, people kind of think of Parkinson's disease as being strictly related to Um, the motor system, um, because Parkinson's is often recognized by its motor symptoms like um, tremor, rigidity, uh, stooped posture, things like that. Um, but because Parkinson's is a, a brain disease, it's a neurodegenerative disorder, uh, it affects more than just the motor system. It affects all sorts of things that go on in the brain. Um, so for example, there are cognitive symptoms that come along with Parkinson's disease, Um, and then there are also uh, social and emotional uh, complications that can arise. So that, that's uh, the very broad area that I'm interested in. Um, I'm interested in looking at, um, you know, whether Parkinson's patients have difficulty recognizing facial expressions, whether they have difficulty communicating with people. Um, and so what I'm focusing on for my PhD is looking at um, deficits in humor processing that might arise in Parkinson's disease patients. That's, well, that's, uh, uh, sounds like a novel direction because, you know, like you said, uh, Parkinson's recognized for movement type, um, symptoms. Um, before we delve in, I really want to know how you're going to measure that, but before we get there, can you maybe tell us a bit, um, you know, as a neurodegenerative disease, what, what does that really mean for the brain and, and, and how does that, how does it, differentially impact uh, one type of symptom or another uh, in, in regards to the brain? Sure, so um, Parkinson's disease being a neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disease um, means that some part of the brain is degenerating or dying. Um, in Parkinson's disease, um, that is uh, dopamine producing neurons. So there's a couple different um, nuclei or Um, spots in the brain that have a lot of neurons um, or brain cells that produce a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Um, and it's these nuclei or dopamine hotspots that start to degenerate and kind of die off in Parkinson's disease. Um, so generally, um, I can't remember the exact uh, percentage, but when Parkinson's disease patients get diagnosed, when they start presenting with motor symptoms, there's already a very large number of these dopamine neurons that are have already died off. Um, 
So you can even have some of these non-motor symptoms um, like cognitive symptoms and um, you know, emotional social symptoms that arise even before the onset of motor symptoms. Um, the different um, dopamine nuclei in the brain are also affected at different rates um, because Parkinson's is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder. That means over time, um, these areas experience more and more degeneration. Uh, these different dopamine areas um, degenerate at different rates as well. So uh, one of them, known as the substantia nigra, uh, tends to degenerate earlier on in the disease and at a much quicker rate. Uh, so that is where um, you know, motor symptoms uh, arise from. Um, and then you have other dopamine nuclei, for example, the ventral tegmental area, which degenerates a little bit slower. Um, so, Parkinson's is considered a pretty complex uh, disease because number one, patients can present with um, a variety of different symptoms. Um, patients don't always have the exact same motor symptoms or the exact same cognitive symptoms, et cetera. Um, another reason why it's so complex is that people progress at different rates as well. You can have somebody who, you know, their, their motor symptoms get extremely, uh, you know, debilitating over a period of four or five years, and then you can have another patient who they've had Parkinson's for 10 years and their progression is a lot slower. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it. No two patient, patients are alike, um, which makes it an interesting disease to study, I will say. I have kind of a stupid question. If dopamine reduction or cutoff of production or secretion is the main issue. Does that mean that if we ingest dopamine that can alleviate part of the symptom? Yeah, that's not a stupid question at all because that's exactly how Parkinson's is treated. Okay. Um, so the, the main line of treatment for Parkinson's disease is a medication called levodopa. So levodopa is a precursor to dopamine. Um, once, sorry? Precursor, which means? So precursor just means that uh, the levodopa molecule will eventually get converted into dopamine okay. once it's ingested into the body. Um, so Parkinson's patients take levodopa pills, you know, several times throughout the day um, to manage their symptoms. That levodopa gets converted into dopamine um, once it's, you know, absorbed into the bloodstream and uh, crosses the blood-brain barrier. Um, it gets converted into dopamine and it helps to um, elevate uh, the dopamine level in the brain um, because you don't have those dopamine producing cells anymore. Okay, and maybe a follow-up question on that and then maybe I will stop after that. Would it be possible that these conversion rates differ from one patient to the other and that's maybe why some patients degenerate faster than other? Um, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure Something that is related uh, kind of along the same lines is the fact that you have these different um, dopamine nuclei in the brain that are degenerating at different rates, um, but you have kind of this blanket treatment approach that elevates dopamine in all areas of the brain. You know, taking levodopa doesn't just elevate dopamine in the parts of the brain that are most um, severely degenerated, it elevates dopamine everywhere. So there's something known as the dopamine overdose hypothesis, 
which suggests that in these areas of the brain that are you know, more spared from degeneration earlier in the disease, for example, um, the ventral tegmental area, uh, when you, a Parkinson's patient takes levodopa, it actually elevates dopamine levels in that preserved area to a point that's almost pathological. So that can actually cause um, or worsen some, some symptoms. And generally those are cognitive. Um, what I'm kind of looking at is whether that also extends to these kind of more you know, social symptoms. Um, so what, why don't we get into the, some of those social symptoms? You, I know you mentioned earlier humor processing. Uh, I, I don't know if I have heard of anyone uh, other than you that has studied something like humor processing. What do you, what do you mean by humor processing and uh, what, what, what would you expect uh, to happen in Parkinson's? Yeah, um, it's a really fun thing to study. I don't know why more people don't do it. Um, humor obviously, uh, you know, is present in our everyday lives. It's something I think we often take for granted. Um, it's something that, you know, really aids in social interactions. You know, there's lots of evidence that humor, um, you know, has positive uh, health benefits, all sorts of things like that. Um, so what I'm looking at humor processing is how the brain um, kind of interprets or comes to understand humorous things. Um, so that's one part of it. That's what we call humor comprehension. So um, you know, getting the joke or understanding a joke. Um, and then the other part of it is humor appreciation. So the feelings of, you know, amusement or mirth that we might experience in response to a joke. Um, those are kind of the two um, main, I guess, prongs or, you know, subcomponents of the general uh, idea of humor processing. Um, so I'm looking at how those two, um, components of humor processing are specifically impacted by Parkinson's um, and levodopa medication. Um, and uh, uh, I guess, are you expecting then that with levodopa, with that, um, that hypothesis saying that it's going to increase too much in the areas where it's uh, not, not quite that low yet, um, this is going to impair their ability to do these two aspects of humor processing? Yeah, exactly. So um, particularly for the humor appreciation component, um, when, you know, we, we think that a joke is funny, um, that is a rewarding experience. Um, you might have heard of dopamine being related to the reward system before. Um, so that uh, whole reward system has to do with dopamine that is um, secreted in the ventral tegmental area. That's that you know, more preserved area that I talked about that can be affected by this dopamine overdose when patients are taking levodopa. Uh, so my kind of hypothesis with that is that uh, for you know, patients, especially in the early stages of the disease, when the ventral tegmental area is not degenerated very much, uh, when they're on their levodopa medication, uh, dopamine might be increased so much in that area that it actually interferes with reward processing. So they might, you know, understand humor to the same degree, but they might not get as much amusement out of it. Um, so this is also something I looked at in my master's degree, uh, which I finished in 2020. Um, 
on the same, you know, sort of topic. Uh, and what I actually found was that this is kind of interesting, but in my healthy control group, I found a reduction in humor appreciation when we gave them a levodopa pill. We didn't find that in the Parkinson's disease group, but I think that's because our Parkinson's disease group, um, the, the average um, duration of their disease, I think was for six years. So it's possible that they might have progressed um, to a point where the ventral tegmental area has like started to uh, degenerate. And so rather than levodopa overdosing that area, it would actually help that area. But it's interesting that we kind of showed it in the control group who would presumably have a non-degenerated ventral tegmental area. Um, so I'm looking at kind of the same thing um, with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI uh, for my PhD. Maybe can you then elaborate on uh, this, this technique? Uh, presumably it's some way of looking at these brain mechanisms that you're talking about? Yeah, um, so fMRI is a type of neuroimaging uh, that looks at um, the activity of uh, neurons or brain cells. So uh, you've probably seen those pretty pictures of brains with you know different parts of it lit up. Um, that is uh, basically what I'm hoping to have at the end of all of this is to look at um, you know, which parts of the brain are lighting up more or having more activity during the different components of humor processing. So which areas of the brain are involved in humor comprehension or understanding the joke, which areas of the brain are involved in humor appreciation. Um, and, you know, does that activity get reduced in an area like the ventral tegmental area when somebody takes levodopa medication? Um, and that would kind of, you know, provide even more support to, um, that those findings that I mentioned for my master's degree, um, it will kind of show the, the neural activity uh, side of it. Yeah, that would be pretty cool if you can validate your previous results. So you're not measuring dopamine directly, but you're measuring so cell activity or brain activity. And is the activity directly correlated to the sensation of humor? How humorous we can find the joke, for example? More activity, more you like the joke, more activity you your brain will have, is that it? Yeah, so um, there's previous uh, neuroimaging studies that have looked at um, brain activity during the appreciation of humor. And what's often found is that the funnier somebody rates a joke, the more activity they have in um, these reward processing areas. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, so we're not measuring dopamine directly, but um, I mean, it's correlational, but uh, there's um, pretty good evidence to show that increased activity would um, kind of implicate more uh, dopamine activity. Yeah, and that's probably even better than just measuring dopamine because dopamine can be very point-centered point while you measuring the brain activity, which is overall how your brain works. So it, it should be even more relevant. The follow-up question I had on that is that everyone has a different kind of humor. Everyone can have a different mood change from day to day. How do you account for that? Yeah, so there's a lot of other data I'm kind of collecting alongside of this. So I'm um, collecting questionnaires from um, all of my participants, looking at um, you know individual differences in sense of humor. So um, you know, 
are people more likely to find, you know, and just anything to be funny or are they more likely to use um, humor in their daily life, things like that. Um, I'm also looking at uh, differences in individual use of different humor styles. So um, there's different types of humor. You know, you can have aggressive humor um, that's directed at other people. You can have self-defeating humor, which is, you know, kind of still on that negative side of the spectrum, but directed towards yourself rather than others. You can have affiliative humor, which, um, you know, is uh, humor directed at others, but meant to kind of has a more positive um, aspect. And then you can also have uh, self-enhancing humor, which is kind of the use of humor um, to cope with, you know, stress in your daily life and things like that. So um, that questionnaire looks at those four different types of humor and we can, you know, look at all sorts of things like that. Does, uh, you know, your tendency to use a different style of humor in your daily life have to do with how easily you are able to understand humor or something like that. Um, and we can also look at whether the use of certain types of humor or humor styles affect uh, disease outcomes in Parkinson's disease as well. So for example, um, you know, do people who use this self-enhancing, you know, coping type of humor, um, do those patients then have better disease outcomes like less depression, less anxiety, things like that. Does, uh, you know, it seems like a quite, quite a tall order to, to classify humor. Uh, it seems like such a, like a creative endeavor that's like, how do you, how do you quantify any of this? And how do you, how do you actually determine how, how it varies? And uh, uh, one thing that comes to mind as well, on top of individual variability, variability in like their general temperament that might make them make somebody more interested in one of those types of the four that you mentioned or another overlaid on top of that, the understanding of the joke or the appreciation of that type of humor may be more or less uh, appropriate for their culture. Is, is cultural aspects matter? <laughs> I'm just wondering if that is accounted for or, or relevant even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, culture is definitely an aspect. Um, What's actually really interesting about humor, though, is that it is um, culturally ubiquitous. It's humor is found in every single culture, every single language, um, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, but yes, the the you know preferences for different types of humor and things like that, I would depend on your culture. Um, that's not necessarily something I'm looking at um, in my current. Uh, PhD studies, um, because most of the people, you know, we're looking at are, you know, Canadians, <laughs> specifically Southwestern Ontarians, um, who, you know, patients with Parkinson's disease and, and healthy uh, elderly people as well. So it would be difficult, I think, to look at uh, cultural uh, impact, but uh, there's definitely some research out there on that, that kind of stuff. So we don't need to we don't need to harp too much on the, the different factors that you wish you could do if you had a <laughs> sample of a million from a cross cultural <laughs> demographic of all over the world. But the last one that I think that comes to mind for me is also well when I'm looking at humorous stuff on the internet, as one does, uh, as a millennial, <laughs> one might do in their spare time. Uh, I, I've seen 
uh, humor directed at looking uh, at different generations and what they find funny. Like they'll be like, oh, a boomer wouldn't get this, but a Zoomer might. And then it's like, why this weird humor of Gen Z is baffling the minds of the Gen Xers, you know, like something like that. You see yeah, stuff like that. Um, it's true. I don't know if this takes place. I mean, presumably you only have people who are middle to elderly aged, but uh, is this something you've ever thought about? It is. Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think about when I'm scrolling through my, you know, TikTok page, some of the things that I find funny are, I'm like, why is this funny to me? This would not be funny if I showed, you know, my parents this, they would be like, oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, so that's actually interesting that you bring that up. It is something that I've thought about because um, one thing that I'm hoping to do in the next couple of months is include um, a control group of young, healthy people um, and compare those uh, young, healthy people to my older healthy controls uh, to look at the effect of aging on um, humor comprehension and humor appreciation. And then, you know, uh, be able to kind of parse out the effect of aging um, to be separate from the effects of Parkinson's disease. Uh, so that's what I'm hoping to do next. Um, but the reason why I've kind of been thinking about differences in, uh, you know, what people find funny across different age groups is because part of my uh, study right now is showing people episodes of Seinfeld when they're inside of the scanner and looking at how their brain activity synchronizes with other people, their peers, um, during the same experience. Uh, so I think that showing an episode of Seinfeld to, you know, a group of people who are, you know, 50 or 60 plus, um, compared to showing an episode of Seinfeld to somebody who's, you know, young, undergraduate or graduate student, uh, I think that it's possible they might have different, uh, you know, reactions or responses to uh, that specific show. I guess uh, <laughs> I'm watching Seinfeld myself actually right now. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, seen, I've seen it all on rewatch again, so to speak. Um, and, I, I, and I think about these factors when I'm watching it with my girlfriend and I'm thinking I'm Jewish, she's not. So some of the jokes are related to this niche Jewish culture in New York that like anyone can get given the context, but like might actually be more funny if you're familiar with family dynamics where similar things happen. But then again, as well, um, depending on your age, some of the, the plot points in the, in the show are dependent on things that are not a problem that we have to deal with today because technological advances have just eliminated those as an issue. <laughs> uh, so, oh yeah, absolutely. So sometimes you'd yeah. be like, well, why, why do they, you know, like what, why do they, what's their problem with this? Why this is something I cannot relate with at all. Whereas someone, you know, elderly would certainly uh, relate more easily. So um, I guess, uh, does this, when you're watching this type of stuff, do, do, do you get bogged down with like thinking about the science of humor and am I appreciating this? Or <laughs> does, it, does it change your ability to appreciate humor? Uh, luckily, I would say no. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, it's interesting studying humor and kind of having, you know, more scientific knowledge about 
you know, why do we even find things funny in the first place? You know, I've had to read a lot of literature on, you know, theories about humor and, you know, why is a joke funny? Like what makes a joke humorous? Um, it's interesting. One of the, you know, biggest humor theories out there is that um, uh, jokes are funny because they kind of uh, contradict your brain's initial predictions of how something is going to go. Um, so it's kind of surprising. And then it's a little bit of a cognitive challenge as your brain tries to figure out, um, you know, how to kind of resolve uh, this new information with what the brain knows about the world. Um, but, you know, there's plenty of instances where something happens that contradicts your brain's predictions, like, for example, in a you know, scary situation or something like that. Um, and so why is that not funny, um, even though there's that element of surprise there? Um, so there's a lot of different uh, theories out there um, about how to kind of resolve these, uh, you know, situations that don't necessarily fit into other theories. Um, so I think about that sometimes, but luckily I don't think studying humor has diminished my ability to enjoy humor or my sense of humor. I wish that studying humor made me funnier, but it doesn't. <laughs> I was wondering what it, what it looks like on a patient point of view. So they come to your lab, got put into a fMRI and they watch TV show. Is that the main ideas? Yeah, so- here, please. <laughs> So all of um, our participants come in for two separate sessions because we look at their brain activity when they are uh, taking levodopa medication and on one day when they're not taking levodopa medication. And that's true for both Parkinson's patients and controls who participate um, in my study. Um, so I have them come in for two separate sessions, but both sessions look relatively similar. Uh, we spend about an hour doing um, different questionnaires and cognitive assessments, as well as motor assessments um, to look at the severity of the Parkinson's disease. Um, and then we head over to the MRI scanner um, where we do some structural scans, which just requires them to lie still and they can even have a nap if they want. Um, and then I have them do a humor processing task where they listen to a bunch of audio clips that are either jokes or non-jokes, uh, and then they have to make some judgments on them. So, you know, do they think that this was meant to be a joke or not? And how funny did you find it? Things like that. And then I also have them watch an episode of Seinfeld. They watch the whole episode while they're inside the scanner. So uh, I like to think it's one of the more enjoyable fMRI studies <laughs> that people get to participate in. Um, you know, it, it's definitely entertaining, I think. Yeah, is it the same episode every time or <laughs> because for you it will be kind of become redundant? Yes. <laughs> yeah, luckily when they're inside of the scanner and, you know, I'm uh, outside in the control room um, playing, you know, the Seinfeld episode, I don't have to hear the audio, you know, every single time. It's just going through the headphones to the participants. So that's good because I think it would get old for me after quite a while. Maggie, this sounds like a really cool study, uh, almost one that I'd want to participate in. Sounds fun. Uh, so hopefully that helps a lot with recruitment. You get lots of people 
part of participating and you get some uh, cool results. And uh, maybe even we'll get you back here to elaborate on maybe this connection between humor and fear <laughs> in the <laughs> reward processing, dopamine related, uh, and, and maybe get some uh, results about uh, you know what happened uh, with the people you scanned while, uh, while watching Seinfeld. Um, I guess uh, our, one of our last things I wanna ask, um, two-parter, one, why? Why, 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 why did you want to study this type of thing? And two, if other people are maybe interested, they have a similar why in their mind, where can they find you on the interwebs? Sure. Um, I'll answer your second question first so I don't forget. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, at Maggie underscore Prenger, P-R-E-N-G-E-R. Um, and yeah, I guess my why is just, uh, you know, going back to my interest in these social and emotional complications that can happen with Parkinson's disease, I think it's really important to explore those sorts of things so that, you know, patients' experiences can be validated. First of all, you know, there's no test out there right now to look at, you know, does a Parkinson's patient have difficulties with social and emotional uh, symptoms? Um, there's nothing to look at the nature of those things or the progression. Um, so I think that oftentimes a lot of patients and their families experience these sorts of things, but it's not something that they're told about uh, when they go and see their neurologist. Um, it's not something that they know to expect or know how to deal with. Uh, so I think that uh, studying it further, you know, brings awareness to it, um, potentially even lays the groundwork for, um, you know, ways that this could be treated in the future, um, things like that. So I hope that, you know, it, it helps the patients at the end of the day. It seems very definitively a cool study and I'm looking forward to see your results. Thanks, me too. Okay, so he, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Claire Bottini, and my co-host was Ayel Frame. We've been speaking with Maggie Pringer, and this episode was produced by Laura Munoz-Baina. If you would like to be involved in the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. If you want to listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on website at greatcast.ca and on podcast app like Podbeam, iTunes, and Spotify. Attentively, select post selected postcards have been uploaded on YouTube at Greatcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great evening. Bye.